Mark chapter 8, and we'll be looking at verse 27 through 38. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them about the the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Let's pray. Father, it is our sincere desire that you open our eyes and open our hearts to these words of Jesus this morning. He has spoken through the Holy Scriptures. He's spoken to his disciples, and he speaks to us today, right where we sit here in Frankfurt. And we ask that you empower us to respond to Jesus this morning. Amen. So we've been on a journey, folks. Literally, for the last six months, we have been in Mark. And I shared with you as we began that the way that Mark writes his gospel is for you to understand who Jesus was, what he said, and what he did. And Mark makes this specific story the center of uh, his his thematic theme of how he writes. The climax is going to be Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But Mark makes this specific story the center. Everything that we have studied, all of the miracles, all that we have been learning about what Jesus said and did is leading to this moment of Jesus asking his disciples, who do you say that I am? And so this morning... What we are going to see is Jesus speak absolutely clearly on three specific items. Jesus is going to speak clearly about his identity in verses 27 through 30. Jesus is going to speak clearly 
about his mission in verses 31 to 33. And Jesus is going to speak clearly about the cost of discipleship in verses 34 to 38. His call to discipleship and the cost of discipleship. And if I have one desire this morning, is that you would simply hear Jesus. Jesus is speaking absolutely clearly. In fact, the passage says plainly to you this morning. He spoke clearly to his disciples. And we have been on this journey. If you, uh, in, in the U.S., we have this, uh, this scenic highway called the Blue Ridge. And I'm sure you have been on highways like this before, but they take you through just beautiful uh, landscape and countryside, and you're, you're driving up into the mountains. But many times your view of the beautiful mountains are obscured by the beautiful forests. So you're on these windy roads, and you're seeing just absolute, uh, it's greenery everywhere, and you're seeing mountains, and you'll see mountaintops, but occasionally the road will open up and they'll have a scenic pull-off where you can pull off and you can get out of your car, and when you get out of your car, the whole panorama just unfolds, where you can see the beauty of everything clearly, no obstructions. This is what Mark does for us this morning. We've been kind of on the pathway of learning specific stories. Mark has been literally handpicking stories that are letting us know who Jesus is. And he's telling us about how he taught. And he's telling us about the Pharisees and uh, the, the, uh, the scribes and those who are uh, pushing back against him. He's telling us about his disciples and how they're struggling to understand. But in Mark chapter 8, when we come to this passage, Mark brings us to a scenic overlook where everything is made clear. Jesus is going to speak clearly to his disciples about who he is, what his mission is, and what does it look like to follow him, the call to discipleship and the cost. So I want you to listen clearly, and we're going to answer those three things this morning as we study the text. So let's begin looking at how Jesus clearly makes his identity known. You know, uh, as we look at verses 27 through 30... It hasn't been since Mark 1.1 that we have talked about Jesus being the Christ. Remember, in Mark 1.1, we began this journey and the study of this gospel with these words. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And since that time, Mark has basically been taking us on a journey, a chronological study of Jesus' life, where One story after another is being given to us so that we could read and hear and see and see through Jesus' interaction, who is this Jesus? And Jesus has this amazing way. Jesus is is, uh, an unbelievable teacher, and and, it shows you. Jesus is taking his disciples. They're on the road. I don't know what it looks like exactly, but in my mind, as they're, they're going, Jesus is kind of in the front. His disciples are in the back. Jesus is talking, and he says to them, kind of casually, who do the, the people say that I am? And then we hear some of these answers. Some say John the Baptist. Remember when we studied the beheading of John the Baptist? It was Herod's fear that Jesus was actually John the Baptist resurrected. Remember this story? 
Some said Jesus was John the Baptist resurrected. And so that's what the disciples tell them. Some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people said Elijah. We've talked about this. Why Elijah? Elijah was taken up to be with the Lord. He was, he was literally picked up on a chariot and, and uh, taken up into heaven. Elijah did not die in the same way that you and I have passed away. Uh, we know of, of uh, Enoch and we know of Elijah. Uh, and in fact, when the Old Testament is ending, it tells us to look for Elijah. And so some people were saying, Jesus, they're saying you're Elijah, the one we were looking for. And then there was this third option of And some just say you're a prophet. We know what a prophet of old looked like from the Old Testament. We believe you're like one of these prophets from the Old Testament. You're clearly a man of God, clearly speaking the words of God, performing miracles. We believe that you're a prophet. And then Jesus is going to turn the tables because now that he has his disciples talking about who he is and and basically just communicating, but who are the people saying that I am? Which is kind of a safe conversation. So as Jesus draws them out, then he's going to ask them specifically. And he says to them, but you, because they kind of avoided the question. So Jesus is going to pursue this a little further. And he says, but you, you, my disciples, who do you say that I am? There's no runner from this question. And Peter, very likely, as... the spokesperson for the disciples. Peter is going to confess that this is the Christ. Peter says, you are the Christ. Now we know the Christ, and this is the first time we see this since Mark 1.1. Mark began by telling us who Jesus was, but from now he's let every single story unfold. And now for the first time, we don't have Mark's commentary about who Jesus was, looking back over Jesus' whole life. Since that time, we've been unfolding Jesus' ministry and life and mission one story at a time. And now we're going to see in Peter's mouth that you are the Christ. In Matthew, in a parallel account, it's not here in Mark, but if you know Matthew, Matthew puts in, uh, in Jesus' mouth the words that it was the Holy Spirit who revealed this to you. And if you remembered last week, remember last week where we left off on this very unique story of a man whose blindness was healed in stages? The very last story we get before we come to Peter's confession of Christ was this healing of blindness in stages. And immediately we're introduced to the disciples spiritual eyes being opened. Peter is going to confess Jesus as the Christ. And Jesus is going to tell him, not in our passage, but in Matthew, the parallel passage, that it's the Holy Spirit who has revealed this to him. Now, I just want to make two points here as we talk about Jesus' identity. And by the way, if you're thinking, where where did Jesus confirm his identity? You said, said, Sam, you're going to make this clear. Well, that's verse 30, where Jesus, after hearing Peter's confession, says... Tell no one. Jesus is affirming, yes, you got it right. I'm the Messiah. And Jesus tells him to tell no one. So we know very specifically, Jesus is speaking clearly about his identity. But I want to just highlight two aspects to this 
public confession. And that's what it was. Did you notice the way that Jesus went about this? One of the, uh, the truths about teaching is that it's much more effective to draw out of someone than to simply tell. To, to lead somebody on a journey of self-discovery where you are inviting them to, to process information by asking questions rather than simply telling all the time. And Jesus uses this and he asks his disciples and he makes them tell him who he is. Now, more than likely, they have had conversations. More than likely, they might have, uh, in a sense, I'm positive that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember, in fact, I think it was Andrew, after he comes and meets Jesus, he goes and tells friends, he says, I think we have found the Messiah. They thought it from the very beginning. But then there were some tensions, right? Because things were unfolding in a way that was a little bit different than what they thought. As Jesus is going head-to-head against the Pharisees, as Jesus is maybe fulfilling things in a different way than they thought. But Jesus is going to invite them to process for themselves and then to verbalize. Have you ever recognized that once I verbalize something, I don't get that back? Right? We, we, we recognize about this about important conversations. Right? Uh, there, if you ever have heard of the, uh, the story of Desiree and I uh, meeting one, one beautiful September in Dubai... There's words that when you say, you don't get back. Uh, we, we had conversations. Uh, and and, and when, when you make that step to say, hey, I just don't think uh, you're a nice person. I think you're the person. You make that step, and there's no coming back. There's a reality that once you voice certain things, is, is that you are sharing literally what your heart feels to be true. And it could be scary to make that step and to say, I am voicing, I am publicly sharing for others to hear what I believe inside and what I'm convinced of, what I'm convicted of. And this is what Jesus does with his disciples and with Peter, is that he invites them to move from basically believing in the shadows to, and they're following him, but to fully saying, I believe that you're the Messiah. And this is something that's really important for, for your faith and for my faith because the reality that uh, we constantly see, and I want to share with you as a pastor, is that at some point in time, your faith or the, 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 what you believe about Jesus has to move from something that you believe inside, that you take that step and are willing to publicly confess, I believe he's the Messiah. There, there's something that is absolutely fundamentally different between things that you hold and you hold in the secret places of your heart versus taking that step of crossing the line and saying publicly so that others will hear, I believe that you're the Messiah. And in fact, we know that's so important that when, when Jesus has, has given his church uh, two sacraments, to identify us as his disciples and then to experience communion, the first sacrament of baptism is a public confession of Jesus to others. Baptism is publicly identifying yourself as a follower of Jesus Christ in front of other followers of Jesus Christ and in front of a watching world to say, 
I believe this man is the Messiah. I am following this man of the Messiah. And the picture, the symbolism of baptism is being baptized in his death and raised again to new life. It is fundamental to your faith to publicly confess Jesus Christ. To follow him in the shadows is, is to lead a faith in the shadows. Where you're, you're never forced to actually cross that line. Whenever you're at work or in front of your friends or in your marriage, you always are holding that inside. That's my personal belief. But it's safe. It's safe just to keep that in. I'm convinced. Because once you identify, it completely changes that dynamic to be a public follower of Jesus Christ. And so the first thing I want you to see clearly is, is that Jesus is the Messiah, and what Jesus is going to invite his disciples to do is to declare that publicly. And I think that's so important for you and for me this morning. And one of the questions that I want to ask you as you sit and as you attend is that just as Jesus asked his disciples, but you, who do you say that I am? I want to invite you to answer that same question. As a pastor, I'm preaching to you, but you, I'm not talking about the disciples any longer. I'm talking about you. You who are right here, right now, sitting in these seats this morning. But you, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus to you? This is the journey that we have been on with Mark. And I told you when we began, what we will do, what Mark will allow you to do is to answer that question for yourself. There's no misunderstandings. We have seen the stories of Jesus. We've seen him teach. We've seen him heal. We have seen how his adversaries reacted. But one thing we should be absolutely clear after six months on this journey is who Jesus was, what he said, and now the only remaining question is this. Who do you say that I am? And like his disciples, are you willing to step out and to publicly confess you're the Messiah? A follow-up question that I have to who is Jesus to you is that if you sit here right now and you have publicly confessed that you uh, have chosen to follow Jesus, have you made that profession public by being baptized and partnering with his church? This is part of Jesus' plan. Is that the, there, is, there are no disciples in the shadows. But every disciple is a public follower of Jesus, committed to Jesus, committed to his mission, and committed to his church. And the way that happens visibly is being baptized into Jesus Christ. Have you made your profession of faith public? Next, let's look at verses 31 to 33. I want to take a look at how Jesus made his mission clear. Verses 31 to 33, I won't reread them, but Jesus is going to say that the Son of Man must suffer. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. And Peter is going to rebuke Jesus, and Jesus is going to rebuke Peter. So let me just say, so in verse 31, just to make some notes for you, it says he began to teach them. This makes clear that Jesus has not 
talked about this with them before. This began to teach them. This was a, an area of faith or an, an, an area of Jesus' mission that he has not talked about with his disciples. So this beginning to teach them, uh, in Mark, we, we now turn the corner. Uh, we ended that story last week with the, with the man's eyes being opened. We begin the next uh, section of Mark. From, from now in chapter 8 until the end, Jesus' crucifixion, the Holy Spirit is going to begin to open their eyes to one very specific theme, and that is suffering and the death of Jesus. So in, in this passage here, in Mark 8, we are going to see Jesus specifically tell his disciples in Mark 9.31, Jesus is going to revisit this issue. And in Mark 10.33 to 34, Jesus is going to share three specific times, three times very plainly, about his mission to suffer and to die. And this is going to form a thematic aspect of Mark's gospel. And he begins to teach them right now in verse 31. In verse 32, just note, and I mentioned this earlier, that Jesus says plainly, this is where I... Uh, the, the theme for our servant comes from. I, we talked about three aspects we're going to make clear this morning. Jesus' identity, Jesus' mission, and the cost of following him. Why did I talk about this clearly re- being revealed? It comes from verse 32, where Mark specifically says, Jesus told them plainly. The reason I say plainly is that Jesus often would use parables where the disciples would come back and say, I don't understand. There was, there was times where uh, the disciples were, were, were literally seeing things with their eyes, hearing the teaching, but, but not fully understanding what is Jesus meaning. Remember with the washing of the hands. Remember when Jesus says it's not what, goes, uh, what, what you eat. It's not what goes in your stomach that defiles. It's what comes out of your heart. And the disciples said, can you make that clear? We don't understand. Over and over again, we've been told that they... they, uh, they see, but they don't perceive. And so in Mark 8, for the first time, Jesus speaks with them plainly. And he's going to speak with them plainly about his mission. And we're going to see that there's two musts. Two musts that come with Jesus' mission. The musts are that I must suffer and I must die. Now let's talk about this must suffer. We need to have a, a correct theology of suffering because suffering is not a goal in itself. Suffering doesn't glorify God just for suffering's sake. But suffering, when it is connected to the gospel and it is connected to Jesus, of, to following Jesus and affirming his identity, when it's connected to the reality that the mission is going to require sacrifices, this kind of suffering is God glorifying and God intended. So Jesus is going to suffer mainly because he's come to preach the kingdom and there's going to be pushback against the kingdom. Jesus is going to suffer because there are people, there's leaders who are in places of position and power and influence and wealth that when Jesus begins to challenge their system of salvation, and he's going to challenge and push back against the, the, uh, the system of salvation that they want the people to believe that keep them in their positions of power, 
they are going to react violently. And they do. This is why Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered because he was willing to walk on the mission of God knowing what it would cost him personally. Jesus, in in another way, suffered not because of the, the violence of people, but just because I truly believe Jesus, each and every day, laid everything that he had on the line. And if you have had busy days, then you know you don't suffer because necessarily uh, things were, uh, were so wrong and tragic. You suffer because when you give your all all day, you're just tired. When you bear other people's burdens, it's heavy. When you see the brokenness, and Jesus saw so much brokenness and people being brought to him, it is heavy. Have you ever walked alongside a friend who was carrying something heavy and you go home and you're exhausted too as you walked with them through life's difficulties and tragedies? Jesus suffered because he willingly bore the burdens of others. And specifically, Jesus is going to die because he recognizes the only way. Doug had talked about this. Sin is the symptom. But the way that we we come back into fellowship with God is reconciliation. Jesus knew that there's only one way that reconciliation happens. And that that is someone would pay the price for sin. So Jesus' mission, he makes clear, is I must suffer. Why must? Did Jesus look to suffer? No. He must suffer because he would not deny the mission that God had given him to proclaim the kingdom of Jesus Christ and to stand against those who would proclaim a different gospel, and to face head-on the reality that there are violent people who will do ill to us, or to Jesus, or to others who proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. And Jesus recognized that the only way to bring us back into relationship was to die. Now, let's just talk about this. That made no sense to Peter and the disciples. There was no box. Remember, I just told you he began to teach them about suffering literally at this point. This is almost two years of following Jesus. And it's quite clear that Jesus has not talked about the reality that he's not just come to bring the kingdom. He was preaching the kingdom all the time. But very plainly, for the first time, he says, here's how the kingdom will happen. You've been with me two years. You've passed the first test. You've identified me as the Messiah. Well done. Let me invite you to the second test. Will you accept that I must suffer and I must die? And we're going to very quickly get to the third aspect, that you will be called to do the same. Now, Peter had no box. It wasn't just that he was rejecting. Just think, for all the Jews expecting Messiah, of how strange it would be for Jesus to all of a sudden be preaching the kingdom, be preaching the kingdom, be preaching the kingdom, inviting, healing, and to all of a sudden slam on the brakes and say, I will suffer and I will die. So Peter basically told them, and this he's going to rebuke Jesus. He says, hey, that's not okay. Jesus is going to be very clearly told by Peter, I am not on board with that mission. I'm not in alignment with that. And he literally pulls Jesus aside to tell him, you can't talk like that. That's not the mission. And so we're going to have this trading of rebukes. Peter is going to rebuke Jesus, and Jesus is going to respond, and he's going to rebuke Peter, and I want to dive into that. Because Jesus is going to tell Peter, Peter, get behind me, Satan. 
This is because the things that you're thinking, the things that you're saying are not my th- or not God's thoughts. They're man's thoughts. We need to explore that a little bit. So what's Jesus talking about? In a very short summary, they have the right Messiah, but they have the wrong mission. They have finally identified Jesus as the Messiah, but they have the wrong mission. Think about this. When we saw the feeding of the 5,000, and after the feeding of the 5,000, we see this very interesting end of the story, where instead of staying and celebrating, Jesus very quickly dismisses the crowds, dismisses his disciples, tells them to get in the boat and grow across the water, and he stays and he goes up to the mountain and pray. And we know that from the parallel account that we have in the Gospels, that what was actually happening was that those 5,000 men, plus how many other women and children, had responded in such a way to recognize this miraculous feeding of the 5,000 to want to make Jesus king right there, right then, so that the kingdom could happen. And Jesus is going to say, it's not now, and it's not yet, and it's not that way. And does he explain that? No. But he's going to dismiss the crowds. He dismisses his disciples. And we're going to pick up this theme again here because Peter's expectation, what he wanted from Jesus and what the disciples were hoping from Jesus, in fact, what all Israel was hoping, that Jesus would be a conquering king who would establish his kingdom on earth and they would cast down the rule of the Romans and he would establish his power and he would bring them along and they would share in the victory of the spoils and there would be no more foot of Rome on their necks. But literally, he would establish his kingdom right there. Why not now? Why are we following you? If it's not now. And so Jesus is going to make sure that they understand. In no uncertain words, Peter, you have the right Messiah. You got the wrong mission. And this is the challenge that we constantly have, is that we respond to the gospel, but we very quickly make the mission about us. And we make We put ourselves at the center of the gospel. And one of the things that Satan is always doing is Satan is always coming alongside and offering us counterfeits to God's mission. Remember when Jesus first begins his ministry? Remember when he was tempted in in the wilderness? Do you remember what happened before Jesus even began all of this calling disciples? and ministering and proclaiming the kingdom. Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness, and he's alone with God, preparing himself for the mission. And who comes and makes a visit? Satan. And Satan is going to ask him and offer him. In Luke 4, verse 5, it says, The devil took him up, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in that one moment of time. And he said to him, I will give you all the authority and all the glory that has been delivered to me. And I will give it to whom I will. Satan offers Jesus everything. And you know what's really important? There's no cost to pay. I'll give you what you want. 
God wants to make you king and ruler, I'll give it to you. I will give you the worship of every kingdom. I will throw it at your feet. I will tell all that you are glorious and to be worshipped. And Jesus recognizes the counterfeit. He recognizes the trick. And Jesus is simply going to say, hey, you shall only worship the Lord God yourself. Satan is saying, hey, if you will worship me, I will allow all of the worship of the world to be given to you. If you will bow at my feet, I will have the entire world bow at yours. You will be king. You will have a kingdom. And you will have everything without suffering, without dying. Let me just tell you why this is so dangerous. Because the reality is this is how Satan works. Satan is always there to offer a counterfeit to God's mission at no cost. But here's the lie. You will pay that cost. You will pay it to Satan. There is no such thing as the ability to accomplish God's mission and to do it in man's ways. It's always God's way. One of the things I simply want to warn you here is that many of us, and I think we live in a church culture that is making this mistake over and over and over again of getting the identity of the Messiah correct and his mission wrong. One of the most clear ways that happens is what we call a prosperity gospel that is being preached at many churches and many places all around the world today and even here all over Frankfurt. It is a gospel with you at the center. It's a, a gospel that recognizes Jesus but then wants to do everything in man's ways and in man's wisdom. It sees every single blessing that God can give us and only in material things. It sees true faith as basically what always leads to prosperity and always leads to healing and always leads to blessing. It sees giving to God for the sole purpose of getting more from God. It sees prayer primarily as speaking a word, speaking a word of promise, speaking it into the air and claiming that promise because you had the ability to voice it out in the open and you had the ability to positively form images that you're going to seize and make your reality. It's a gospel that constantly preaches about your happiness, your reward, your blessing, God's power for your benefit and God's promises All now. And that is a gospel that is preached over and over and over again at many churches. I want to tell you, it is a lie from the pit of hell. And it will send you to hell because you've identified the Messiah, but you are going about the mission in a way that is directly from Satan. And you have made the gospel all about you. And it is not. The gospel includes you. The gospel gospel will reconcile you. The gospel will invite you to experience God's love. But God's plan is not simply for your health, your wealth, and your prosperity. You can have all those and go to hell. You can have all those without Jesus. 
So let me just say it here and let me say it as straight as I can. As a shepherd who cares about you, there are so many false gospels and so many people getting Jesus right, but going about the preaching of what it looks like to follow him in a way that has made you basically the end beneficiary of every good thing that God can pour out, health, wealth, prosperity, healing, and has nothing of the reality of the invitation to suffer and to die. So the question I simply want to ask you here is, is God's word informing your understanding of his mission? Jesus made his mission clear. I must suffer and I must die. And this is the God-appointed means of accomplishing the mission. Is your understanding of the mission being informed by God's word or false gospels and false preachers and false churches that are proclaiming that gospel all over this city and all over the world? And to that gospel be damned because you will go to hell. I can't say it more clearly. I can't say it more passionately. And it's not to get a rise out of you. It is to tell you the honest truth that that gospel is being proclaimed and that gospel is, is taking over what is the true gospel because it's much more attractive. You tell me which church you want to go to. One that will tell you the truth or one that will health, blessing, prosperity, say the prayer, envision the prayer, live your best life now. I don't need to give you names, but I think you understand the direction I'm going. If you want me to give you names, I will. You can do with that after. I will tell you. I will be glad to tell you all the false preachers and the false gospels and the false churches that we see so you can avoid them. But on the recorded live presentation, we will refrain from casting stones. But I will tell you, and I'm not afraid that you know. You tell me who you're listening to, and I'll tell you if they're a heretic. Verse 34 to 38, Jesus' call and cost of discipleship made clear. Let me walk through this in a short amount of time. Verse 34, the fact that Jesus mentions the crowd means that he's no longer just talking to his disciples. We can't just say, well, Jesus was talking about that kind of cost for the twelve. The fact that Jesus kind of pulls back and he says he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples in verse 34, really makes clear Jesus is talking to you and me sitting in these seats here in Frankfurt. This is to anyone who wants to hear, to know, and to follow Jesus. The disciples weren't called to some kind of higher standard. Jesus wasn't simply speaking to those 12, and these applied to them. He's speaking to us all. He's speaking to us to hear today. So what is the call? Well, the call really was... Two requirements. What does Jesus say it looks like to be his disciple? The first thing is to deny yourself. The second one is to take up your cross and to follow him. Let me unpack those. What does it mean to deny yourself? In the most simple way possible, it's the exact opposite of the prosperity gospel, which I just shared with you. To deny yourself is to stop living with yourself at the center. It's that simple. To deny yourself is to stop making yourself the daily center of your decisions. But to make Jesus the center, to make his kingdom the center, 
to make his will the center. To deny yourself is to simply say, I recognize that Jesus, if he is the Messiah, is not just the Messiah, but he is Lord. And I submit myself to his good and perfect will. And at each and every point, I have the choice to live my life the, my own way. To deny yourself is to say, but when I made that step, when I publicly confessed Jesus, what I was publicly confessing is, I am following him and not myself. And I am making his mission what is ultimate and not my own. That is why the prosperity gospel will damn you to hell. Because you are at the center. And it is your mission and your fulfillment and your blessing and all your good. And God invites you to replace a gospel of self with a gospel of Jesus. And he invites you to now live daily denying yourself. And by the way, denying yourself is actually a really good thing. Because your heart and your emotions will lie to you about what is best. And if you think that denying is somehow settling for a life that is less satisfactory and less enjoyable and less good, let me just tell you, that is a lie from hell. Because God wants what is best for you. Your good is what is God is after. And the reason he asks you to deny yourself is that left to ourselves and our human wisdom, we will live life in such a way where we will forfeit our souls. The Bible tells us there is a way that seems right to man in our, in our human thinking. And the scriptures say, but it ends in death. If you don't deny yourself, here is where you end up. Death. Death. Which is why we learn to deny ourselves so we might live to Christ. To take up your cross, I want to be careful that we don't soften this. And we don't make taking up your cross to be, I have a, a specific ailment, or I have a specific disease, or I have this thing wrong with my body. That is not your cross. And if you've never heard that before, then let me make it clear. Your cross is not the problem that you have or the challenges that life has given to you. The cross is always related to the gospel. It is what sacrifices you must make if you refuse to deny Jesus. The cross isn't this difficulty that you have. Listen, that's called sin. We live in a broken world and it's messed us up. And so we have physical ailments, we have challenges, we have brokenness, but that's not your burden. Your burden and what it looks like to say, I'm willing to take up my cross. Willing to take up your cross means I am willing to follow the gospel, to follow Jesus, no matter what it costs me. Any kind of punishment, persecution, or even laying down my life, that's what looking, that looks like to carry your cross. It's basically to say ahead of the journey, I died to myself, which means I'm already ready to die for Christ. But don't, cheapen this by saying, because of, of all of these things, that's my cross. No, it's not your cross. Your cross has to do with the gospel and following Jesus and any persecution or suffering that would follow that. And let me just invite you to the paradox and then we'll close. So if following Jesus looks like denying yourself and taking up your cross, what if you reject that? What if you heard every word I said and said, I, I don't 
believe that. And that's a normal, natural reaction, right? I've, I've spoken to you plainly. I haven't mixed words, I don't believe. I hope you don't walk away thinking there's a gray area. I've tried to speak as plainly as possible, in as loving a way as possible, in as sober a way as possible. But what if you reject that? Well, the Scriptures talk to us about what happens if we reject Jesus' call. It says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me or the gospel will save it. What good is a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? This is the paradox of the Christian faith. If you hear what I said and you reject it and say, I refuse to believe that's good news. The reality is I can't make that decision for you. Everybody has to make that choice for themselves. And that's why we're having this conversation. And you can reject Jesus. But Jesus tells you something important. He says, if you reject me and try to save your life, if you don't want to deny yourself, if you don't want to take up your cross, Jesus says, here's the paradox. In thinking you're saving your life, you are forfeiting your soul. You're giving yourself up to eternal damnation. Jesus says in John 12, 24, Truly, truly, I tell you, unless a seed or a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains a seed. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We can just look to nature. The only way any plant will ever produce is if that seed falls into the ground, that seed decays and dies, and out of that springs new life. This is the same way it works in our spiritual lives. We die to ourselves so that we can live to Jesus. It happens no other way. If you think, I will save this seed. I will not waste it. I, don't, I refuse to plant it. That seed will simply not bear fruit. It will not live. That seed will stay dead. Life is inside of it, but it, it is, it, in a sense, it cannot live until it's planted and died. So here's the conclusion. Jesus is quite clear. In verse 38, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory and his holy angels. So here's just the truth about rejection. If you deny Jesus, if you are ashamed to follow him, or you don't want to deny yourself, God will not lie. And at the end of this life, when you stand before him, God will affirm that you rejected him. And just as you were ashamed to call him Lord, he will be ashamed to call you a follower because it would be a lie. God will not lie. And so if you deny God, he will deny you entrance into his eternal kingdom. So let's just move to our application. It's a very simple summary. Here's my questions for you this morning. We've come to a halfway point in Mark. I've tried to speak as clearly as I can. But more importantly, I have tried to allow Jesus to speak as clearly as he can to you. Who is Jesus to you? Are you willing to profess him publicly? If you've professed him publicly, are you willing to make the next step of faith and be baptized, professing him publicly and into his church? Are you willing to allow him to define the mission And if you have been caught allowing false churches, false pastors, false gospels to redefine the mission, 
Are you willing to go back and let Jesus interpret the mission for himself? If you're here this morning and you are ready to follow Jesus, let me invite you. I would love to talk with you. I would love to have this conversation. What I believe, with this is without drama, without exaggeration, the most important conversation you will have in your entire life because it is about the one single thing that is more meaningful in all of life, and that is Jesus' offer to follow him. If you would like to have that conversation with me, let me invite you to do that today, after the service, without delay. Lord Jesus, you've opened your word to us. You've spoken clearly. I pray that now our hearts will be open to hear and respond. And for anyone who is sitting here who is debating about that conversation, about publicly confessing you, about identifying as a follower of Jesus Christ, about responding to your mission, and about following you, no matter what the cost, recognizing that it is only in losing our lives that we find it. God, I pray that we would be able to see your grace opening our eyes to these beautiful truths this morning. Amen.